Oh, there you are. Hi. Oh, my God. I look like a ghost. Sorry. I forgot to put on my headphones, so... Oh, now Bodie's barking. You're you... obnoxious dogs. I hate people who can't keep their dogs I know. I just, I just did um struggle session podcast. I have to show you Bodie, by the way. She's so cute. So I just did the struggle session podcast, and my dog was barking in the background. They're like, it's okay. Glenn Greenwald has normalized this. So, <laughs> it what is. It's my trademark. I feel like you owe me money for that. I know. I'm I sorry. could. I'm sorry. I just have to show you Bodie. Bodie, say hi. Let me see. Oh, my God. He's so hilarious. Hold on. Okay, first of all, I can tell just by looking at her, she's so spoiled. Um, but she's very gentle. She's spoiled and she's gentler now. She used to be a monster because she's at Lhasa Apsa and they're bred yeah. to be guard dogs. Like, yeah, yeah, no, dogs. they're very, they're very like, they, they're very loyal and vigilant. Yes. Okay. You think she's spoiled now? Wait till you see this that I just bought her. My parents, it's, she's my parents. She's like my little sister. Look at this jacket. I can just tell by her face she's so spoiled. She's such a princess. Hold on. Yeah, you have to follow me on Instagram and follow her hashtag. Actually, you just have to follow her hashtag, Bodie Pooch Pup. I'll show it to you. <laughs> yeah, she needs her own Instagram account. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. On today's episode, I speak to Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and Intercept co-founder Glenn Greenwald. Thank you so much for talking to me. Again. Yeah, again, I know. Um, thanks for the rerun, the repeat. Uh, you are, you're a triple repeat offender now. This is the third time, I guess, that you're on. Is there like some point when I attain co-host status or do I still have a long way to go before that? Cuomo status, you said? Co-host status. Oh, co-host, you should. We could we can look into that. That's something we yeah. could, we could uh, explore. But there's so much we could talk about. We could talk about your shelter. I know that's that's something. I don't know how much you talk about that on political shows, but we could talk about that because the personal is political. Um, we could also talk about the fine line of where you think that terrible people like libs um, and we, where we and libs can work together, if at all how we kind of walk that line. And of course, we can always go with the Bernie bro smear, any of those, and what's That's happening. That's always a good fallback. It's always a good fallback, because it's always around. It's so great. Um, yeah. And the burn, and also Brazil, though. We should probably start with Brazil, because you are there, and that is a very serious situation. I'm trying to segue into that from a, from our like sarcastic, funny uh, banter Banter. Style. Yeah. Okay, let's not talk about fascism on yeah. the rise. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So is it fascism? How about that? Is it fascism? What do you think of the discussion? That term gets thrown around a lot in the context of Donald Trump. What do you think of that term's relevance to Trump, relevance to Bolsonaro? So I've never been a fan of the comparison between Bolsonaro and Trump, in part because Bolsonaro's statements over the course of 30 years are so much more extreme than even Trump's worst statements from advocating the death of 30,000 people as part of a civil war to repeatedly talking about the virtues of the military dictatorship that ruled the country for 21 years and saying that things were better then and wanting to go back to it and a long litany of stuff that he said about LGBTs and black people and women that even Trump's worst statements can't approximate. Beyond that, and much more importantly, is the fact that unlike in the U.S., which is a very old and established democracy and has a lot of safeguards, as I think we've seen under the Trump presidency, where you could argue that 
U.S. democracy is more vibrant than ever, given the kind of uh, reaction of the media and Congress and the citizenry and the courts to a lot of what Trump has done. In Brazil's democracy, which is only 33 years old, the institutions are much more fragile. They've been devastated by a series of multiple crises, and their ability to impose serious limits on Bolsonaro is much less potent than American institutions can wield against Trump, which makes him a much greater danger for that reason alone. He just got inaugurated on January 1st, so it's you know just a couple of weeks. The new Congress doesn't convene until the first week of February. So I don't want to be hyperbolic about the dangers that the presidency is already ushering in. Not much has happened since the inauguration beyond some just ideological stuff that's more or less standard. But if you just look at the long history of things Bolsonaro has said, you would be incredibly naive and blind not to recognize the serious threat that his victory poses to just basic democratic principles, the rule of law, basic civil liberties and the like. And he, unlike Trump, was in the military, right? Yeah, I mean, he was in the military at the time the military was ruling the country as part of a dictatorship that the United States and Great Britain helped install through a military coup, a dictatorship that he speaks very fondly of. Right. Right, and he's a big fan of what's uh, Ustra. Is that um, that famous? Director? Yeah, there was there was there was a, a notorious uh, member of the military dictatorship who oversaw the most brutal interrogations using very extreme methods of torture that resulted in the death of at least hundreds and probably thousands right. of dissidents, including the torture of Dilma Rousseff, who became the president of Brazil in two thousand. And uh, 10, but at the time in the 70s was an actual guerrilla who took up arms against the dictatorship. And General Ulster was one of the people who actually physically, personally oversaw her torture. And when Bolsonaro stood up on the floor of the Brazilian Congress to announce his impeachment support, his support for her impeachment, he did so by explicitly praising him as did his son. So they, his son walks around with a t-shirt with Ulster's image on it. So, you know, you can question the extent to which they'll be able to implement the most extreme expressions of their worldview, or maybe even question their desire to do Mm. so. But clearly, which is all we can judge on their, the history of their statements about their own ideology and their uh, philosophy is one of extreme authoritarianism, and you could even use fascism in its most classical sense. Right. So, oh wait, you said she was she was a, a guerrilla and she was um, armed and fought. So she's like Hillary Clinton, the Hillary Clinton of Brazil. Yeah, the way you know, just like Hillary Clinton, you know, took up arms in her youth to fight for a communist revolution and to right. overthrow a capitalistic hegemony. Yeah. Right. So too did Dilma Rousseff, which is why those two are so often compared. Right. And then, just like Hillary, spent years in 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 prison right. as a dissident being tortured for her radicalism well, so too did Dilma. Right. so you can see their trajectory i was actually thinking similar. that there that the overlap besides that was also when hillary after losing you know she was like in the woods prepping the resistance yeah i yeah. mean a lot of people think she was just taking really peaceful walks but in fact she had unbeknownst to a lot of people were working on some reporting about this she had gathered a lot of her old guerrilla comrades right. um as part of the troop that she was a part of. 
Um, and they were engaging in guerrilla warfare training right. in, 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 in those woods near her multimillion dollar home, um, in order to fight wall street hegemony right. and, um, I, the rule of Silicon Valley and the Trump administration. I'm definitely going to have to, for the image of this episode, like, like Photoshop Hillary and Bill into Che and, um, and Fidel. Yeah. I mean, that is clearly their lineage, yeah. um, which is why, they deserve the the title resistance right. because they come from this lineage of right. noble and brave warriors yes. of of the resistance. Right, and anti Nazis friend. Yeah, exactly. Part yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, what when you we know, say they're like partisans. French that's what we French mean. leftists. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. French yeah. leftists and. In, in in various um, enclaves fighting Nazis exactly. with, with weapons and the like at the risk of their own lives. That's the Clintons. So Always has been. Wh- what do you say? I mean, people like you will often get called um, Trump apologists, right? Uh, I get that. You get that. Anyone who's critical of the people who lost to Trump will, will get called that, right? And can you lay out a little bit about how people, like how centrist Dems... I mean, I don't even know. Let's call them that for now. Do you have a, a term you prefer? Wall yeah, Street like Dems? establishment Democrats establishment or Democrats. liberals how, works well. Liberals too, no. So how do these people actually enable Trump? Because I always think like, no, we're, we don't we don't like Trump. That's part of the reason that we're pushing the, the Dem, centrist Dems to not be awful. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a huge irony, which is if you really believe the maximalist rhetoric about Trump, that he's a white nationalist and a fascist and a threat to American democracy. There should really only be one question that you're interested in, which is how is it that he won and how to avoid repeating whatever caused him to win in the future. So the irony is that those of us who are actually most interested in that question and not just because we want to figure out why Trump is winning, but also why leaders like him around the world are winning, whether it's Bolsonaro in Brazil or Brexit in the UK or the rise of Marine Le Pen or in France or even in Germany with the far right and in lots of other countries as well in Eastern Europe and elsewhere in Italy is because there's a failure of neoliberalism and centrist center-left politics. And I think that the best and most important way to oppose Trump is to figure out what fundamental defects within that wing of the American polity have caused an abandonment of support so that somebody like him, this kind of clownish game show host, could actually win the presidency. And ironically, the people who claim to be most interested in wanting to stop Trump are doing everything possible to prevent a discussion of the only question that really matters when it comes to figuring that out, which is how is it that the Democratic Party went down a path where he won, where the GOP took over most uh, levers of government and where globally um, this kind of new right movement is succeeding. Right. I think a lot of times, and you and I joked about this, or maybe uh, not. Maybe it wasn't off camera. Maybe it was on camera. Yeah, it was on camera at the beginning, or maybe actually we didn't even joke about it. You said it sort of earnestly and truthfully, which is that politics and is the, is a function of who you are as a person. And I do think that oftentimes political 
developments and discourse and the like can be best understood through a psychological lens or through understanding human nature as opposed to just trying to understand it in in isolation as a political question. And I think one of the strongest impulses as human beings that we all have, and I include myself in this as a human being and everybody who's human, is there's a temptation psychologically when something bad happens to absolve yourself of blame and to try and assign blame to others. And one of the hardest things to do as an individual in our lives, not politically, but just in our lives, is to focus ourselves not on how we can assign blame to others, but interrogate what responsibility we ourselves blame right. a bear for bad things that happen. And it's a very difficult thing to do because instinctively, psychologically, it's much more pleasing and much more self-protective to declare ourselves innocent and others guilty. And I think you see this play out in very vivid ways politically. So when bad things happen, there's an immediate temptation to find others to blame and absolve oneself. And I think there's a lot of political discourses driven by that. Right. But even just the kind of, it's like you can't trust people. You know when people are too emotionally involved in something, you're like, you can't deal with this, let someone else handle it. I feel like there's something like that with the Democratic Party. So people are so emotional about it and tribal about it that they don't even see how, ironically, like you and I don't even identify as Democrats, but we want the person who is most likely to beat Trump to be, we wanted, okay, we like Sanders. I'm just using like basic terms to, because I don't know what this principle is, but it's something like this distance, this irony, like, again, going back to the Iraq war thing, like I'm I'm not a nationalist. But the being, but criticizing the invasion of Iraq was actually much more pro-USA than the people who identify as nationalists who want us to invade Iraq. Does that make sense? It's like a- right. Yeah. No. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the, I think one of the things that has happened in U.S. politics is that, and I'm hardly the first person to observe this, is things have become much more polarized along partisan lines, principally because of how media entities are incentivized to behave. And I think most of this began in the early 1990s with the advent of talk radio and cable news, where Rush Limbaugh and Matt Drudge and Fox News became incredibly successful and profitable by driving their ideological followers insane about Bill Clinton. Right. You know, he wasn't just a liberal president. He was a drug runner. Hillary was murdering people in order to protect their drug run runway in Arkansas. She had Vince Foster murdered. She was, you know, all of that, just kind of the insane conspiracies that drove people to believe that Bill Clinton wasn't a bad president, but was an existential threat to their way of life. Right. To the point where they, it's kind of remarkable. They, they impeached him over the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And that model then actually kind of got translated into the Bush-Cheney years as well. And I'm not making an equivalence. I'm just saying that the phenomenon, the framework continued where liberal media outlets really thrived. And I mean, I I know I was a part of it and a beneficiary of it. And the liberal blogosphere really was driven by this idea that George Bush and Dick Cheney weren't just bad presidents, but were radical departures from everything the United States had ever been and grave and existential threats to the Republic. And a lot of people profited and benefited from that. 
by feeding people that fear. And then the same thing, of course, happened once Obama took over. He was the first African-American president. So right. there was a natural fear that was easily provoked but then all the stuff about he's really kenyan and right. he's really muslim and he's really a subversive and working for foreign Hillary powers said, yeah i mean it was that script he was a subversive working for foreign right. powers against the united states a manchurian candidate right. raised in indonesia you know it's obviously it's very familiar to us now when we think about what trump is where by feeding that same storyline to democratic partisans about trump msnbc and liberal commentators, I mean, just have made so much money. The The New York Times bestseller list every week is filled with some new book on how Trump is an unprecedented danger. And so when you constantly feed people for 30 years with the idea that the other side isn't a political enemy, but is a grave, unprecedented threat right. to your existence, you naturally are going to cling to your own side as the safeguard of your survival and therefore be angry at anybody who criticizes it. These are just very potent human instincts that are being constantly provoked and exploited for profit. Um, I think cable news has really escalated it and now social media has made it all the much worse for all the reasons that we know about how that further polarizes and atomizes and tribalizes people. Yeah. So, okay, speaking of the personal is political and human nature... And um, we were already talking about Brazil, where you live, of course. Tell us about your interest in dogs. One of the, the best, the funniest things about your Twitter um, is account is watching you fight about, like, canine emotional intelligence with the same tenacity with which you fight about civil liberties. And um, I, as a recent dog um, adopter, am, like, totally in love with dogs now, but I never had dogs as a kid. Um, what's your trajectory with, with pets and tell us about the shelter that you started? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I mean, I've always loved dogs. Um, just from childhood, I've always, you know, had, we had a dog that was supposedly my father pretended to buy for my sixth birthday, but he really just exploited that as an excuse to get a dog for himself. And that dog really only liked my father and hated all of us. So I never really had my own dog. I lived with the dog, but it wasn't really my dog. But I always loved, even that dog who didn't like me that much, I loved that dog. And there were all these neighborhood dogs that would always, I would lure them to our house and play with them. And so I was always very, and even just animals generally, I just had a natural affinity for them. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I always ate meat for uh, decades and supported this horrible right. industry that imposes intense atrocities and suffering on farm animals because I wasn't really cognizant of it and I never really focused on it. And so dogs kind of became my gateway to broader animal rights activism. Gateway, gateway species. Um, yeah. And, you know, so once we, once I got to Brazil, uh, my husband, David, I had at the time I had one dog and then we got a second one and then we just started rescuing dogs and we had three and then five and then nine and then 14. So it just became a passion and we started fostering dogs and placing dogs and and the more I got to know dogs just the more I fell in love with them the more they kind of gave me they kind of became like the vista into the world of spirituality for me and understanding myself and just opening up better and being more varied and multi-leveled as a person and then we started working with the population of homeless people who live on the streets with their dogs and saw this singularly profound bond that exists between them and decided that we were going to build a shelter around this extraordinary energy. And there's like, you know, now social science research on the right. unique 
bond between homeless people and their dogs that comes from the fact that, you know, if you live in a house and you have a bunch of friends and work and all these other things that give you gratification, your dog isn't as important to you as somebody right. who lives on the street oh, and has yeah, nothing. Right. Same with the homeless dog. Right, a home, if you have a dog that lives in a suburban family, has kids and right. parents and friends and other dogs, but the homeless dog only has the homeless person that they live with, and right. therefore they become even more important to one another than the average family that has the average dog, or even the average working person that has an average dog that, that has a dog. And the bond is just unique and singular. And so the project that we built was designed to tap into that um, by finding homeless people who are already devoting themselves to animals by caring for them in the most moving and self-sacrificing ways, um, by employing them at the shelter, helping them open bank accounts, you know, get a stable income, and then exiting the streets permanently, getting permanent employment, finding permanent home, and then at the same time having an animal shelter. And honestly, I think like part of it was inspired by, for me at least, the example of Noam Chomsky, whose 90th birthday just happened, and my husband and I recorded a video for him. And one of the what we basically said was, I think that his legacy is going to be not specific discoveries in linguistics or particular political ideologies, as influential as all that has been. But for me, his example is that your politics are worthless if the values you profess to believe in aren't reflected in the way that you live your actual life and how you treat other people um, in your actual life. And so I think that so much of our political discourse now is this kind of cheap bullshit, you know, easy, lazy, vapid tweeting and posting that's designed to show the world that you're a good person without actually having to do anything to substantiate it. Right. Where I think it's extremely important even though political advocacy is really important to be cognizant of the fact that it really only matters and it's only genuine and therefore can only have an impact if you as a person are living your life in accordance with it. Right. And so why Chomsky in particular? Like, why does he stand out as someone who lives his values? So I remember when in like 2007, it was like the first year or the second year I was writing about politics and I got invited to speak at this obscure college in upstate New York. I think it was like SUNY Albany or Buffalo or Syracuse, somewhere there. And the person who had, you know, I wasn't very well known at the time. I had, you know, a fairly decent sized blog readership, but right. you know, that was it. And the person who organized the event was this so this kid who was like a freshman at the school and he was studying to be a social studies teacher. So he wasn't trying to be a scholar. He just wanted to teach middle school students social studies to like make them better right. citizens. And he picked me up at the airport for this event and told me the story on the way to the hotel about how about six months earlier he had written to Chomsky after seeing a speech Chomsky gave and shared with him a couple of thoughts that he had about Chomsky's speech and asked Chomsky a question, and he told me he never in a million years thought that he was going to get a reply. And he got this, about three days later, this very long, thoughtful, engaged reply that was, like, humble and grateful for the inquiry and also, like, so respectful of the question and, and really, like, made an effort to answer it. Right. And this is, you know, Noam Chomsky, By at that time he was 80 years old, one of the world's greatest intellectuals, world-famous you know, taking time out of his day to answer somebody who has zero 
to offer him in terms of right. material benefit or gain, but just respecting who he was as a human being. And then I just heard stories like that, you know, thousands of times. Right. And then once I got to be friends with him, I saw how he treats people in life who have nothing to offer him materially. I heard how right. he speaks about what motivates him in private when no one is listening. Um, and just could see that all of his political ideology that I found so appealing emanates from this core humanity without which his ideology would be meaningless. Yeah. So he walks the walk. So to speak. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And also there are these studies on um, like you probably know this, but oxytocin is released when dogs and, and people look at each other. Look into each other's eyes, the bonding hormone. Yeah, I mean, a big part of what I want, what, what I try and do when I talk about dogs is a lot of times what happens is if you adopt a dog or you rescue a dog or whatever, people talk about it like it's some charity right. event, you know, some charitable thing you did. Oh, you helped this, right. you know, being in need. And it's true. Like, it is a nice thing to do right. and you do alleviate um, an animal's suffering. But the thing I try and impart to people is that usually the biggest beneficiary when you do that is you yeah because there's all of these studies about rising depression and anxiety and mental health struggles and suicide because our society is increasingly constructed in a way that isn't meeting our psychological needs yeah. and one of the reasons dogs have become increasingly important to people across the political spectrum is because what you just said that they do provide this kind of venue this vista this kind of vehicle to get emotional fulfillment, to um, relate to another living being in a way that's loving and caring and intimate, in a way that's very difficult to do if you're working a 14-hour job, if you're struggling with all kinds of debt, um, you know, if you're living your life online because yeah. you're required to do that for your work and you're dealing with people in a kind of like very segmented, partial way, it's actually touch and feel and you know all the tactile sensations that comes from a dog and to have a, this this living being look at you in this very loving and loyal way is something that gives you incredible fulfillment and satisfaction yeah. is very gratifying yeah and that's why i just i that's why i try so hard to say the reason to go adopt a dog isn't because there's a dog in need like that is a good reason enough but it's really you, you can't do anything better for yourself right. than that yeah no, I mean, I, I freelance from home and like having the dog, it's my parents' dog. I'm like dog sitting her. It changes everything, everything. It's like, yeah, I'm just happy. Like while I'm at home and, bef and usually I'm like kind of down about like, I'm like, I need a co-working space cause I'm gonna drive myself crazy. I mean, I'm so much more negative. Um, yeah. I mean, I think to me, like one of the fascinating things about dogs is, I mean, obviously dogs are you know, their intellect is lower than humans in certain ways, right? They can't do advanced mathematical calculations. They haven't devised ways to build high rises. They haven't found cures for diseases. On the other hand, there are certain things that dogs can understand about the world and intuit about the world that are inaccessible to human beings. 
they obviously smell and hear infinitely better, but I think they also just are much more empathetic and have this capacity to connect to people's unspoken emotions. Yeah. They have an ability to live in the present. Um, obviously, unconditional love and loyalty come much easier to dogs than humans. So even though in certain respects, dogs are inferior intellectually, right. in other respects, I find them superior in the sense that they have a wisdom that human beings don't generally have on their own that you can actually learn from. Right, yeah. And also, like, going back to the issue of homeless people and, and animals, they also done studies that you live longer when homeless people will live longer when they have pets. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because when I first started really interacting with homeless people on the street, you know, it was probably, like, 10 years ago. Rio has a lot of homeless people who live on the street with dogs. And I had this very jaded, cynical view of it. I thought that they were just had dogs because it was a way of generating sympathy to get right, more yeah. people to give you money. I also thought that, you know, it was kind of a pretext, like they didn't really care about their dogs and just pretended to right. to show off for other people. And I also felt sorry for the dog. I felt like, oh, this poor dog, you know, like, wouldn't it be much better if they lived in a house and though dogs right. need a house? And the more I got to, the more I interacted with, you know, them and spoke to them as human beings, not the dogs, but the people, the more I completely came to abandon all of those views. And... You know, I like when I remember I used to walk by a homeless person, I'd give them money, and then I would like stand on the corner when they didn't know anyone was looking, and I would see that they would give their dog even greater affection when they thought no one was watching, you know, uh, in yeah. private. And a lot of times I would offer money and they would say, No, could you like buy food for my dog or, you know, medicine for my dog? The thing that always impressed me was I would always like offer to buy a leash because my big fear is losing my dog and I always thought like yeah and I was like probably like that neurosis mode, yeah. and I always thought like you know what wouldn't it be horrible if they only have each other and they get separated and they would always say no I don't need a leash like my dog goes wherever I go and she knows if I right. come if I go to wait for me here I need this or that instead and the thing that impressed me the most was that what people always said was because they're of their dog they get treated as human beings so oh, if you're homeless yeah. and you don't have a dog people just step over you and pretend right. you're invisible whereas when you have a dog other dog owners can relate to you because your dog is just like their dog right, right. like a homeless dog behaves very there's no caste system among dogs like a person who lives in a rich house doesn't right. feel superior to a dog that lives on the street they'll start playing they'll start interacting and then suddenly the dog owners the homeless person and the wealthy person are talking to each other as equals and as human beings. And they talk about how their dog is their entryway into being treated as a human being and not being invisible, which I found so moving and fascinating. Yeah. Um, and what about uh, children? What's that like having children? You know, I want, I would love to give you some like snarky snide answer about how horrible they are. Cause I used to love making jokes about how I wanted to drown my kids in, in the pool. <laughs> And there are still occasions when I when I do actually think about different ways that I could kill them. Right. And I like have come to realize that they do the same for me. Yeah. But it's been I guess like a year and two months since we've adopted these two kids, and honestly, like I'm shocked at how much I love it and how much I like. I knew I was gonna love kids. I knew I was gonna love them, like in the sense that it's kind of like if a dog shows up, like that was my experience, right? That was my touchstone. Right. If a dog shows up at your house and is sick and needy and you're like there to have the obligation to provide for it and protect it and secure its well-being, 
you naturally like love the dog right. just because that's your you've adopted this nurturing role, but you don't necessarily like every dog, right? Like some are just annoying, some right. are you know just like have weird personalities. You don't connect to each dog equally. So I knew I was gonna love my kids, but I didn't know if I was gonna like them. Right. And I'm shocked I actually like them. Like they're funny, they're mischievous, they're obnoxious in good ways. I like just sitting and talking to them. Um, which, you know, I guess is good. Like if you're gonna take on the responsibility of raising two kids, yeah. it's actually good that you like them. I just didn't know because I've never done it before right. if that was gonna happen. So I'm really surprised at how much I enjoy the whole experience, yeah. honestly. And does it change the way you experience or think about politics? Like when I was interviewing David Sirota, he so much of what he was saying was about the climate and the world for his kids and other people's kids. But there was definitely a kind of like a, a perspective on it that came from, I think, being a parent. Um, I'm not suggesting like people who don't have kids don't care about this stuff. But has it changed the way you see politics at all? Yeah, I think it has in a couple ways. I mean... One way is just that, you know, it's hard to put into, like, obviously there's a lot of poverty in the U.S., but there's places in the world where poverty is so extreme that it doesn't really compare to what you encounter in the U.S., right. So, and, and then, you know, even then the, like Brazil, obviously poverty in Brazil is different than poverty in the U S but then poverty in, in Africa and in places in Southeast Asia, Asia right. and the like are different still from Brazil, um, because there are poor countries in Brazil. Um, but so th that's part of it is just having gone through the adoption process and seen incredibly impoverished orphanages in the poorest parts of an already poor country. Right. Of kids who just have had the worst luck in life, you realize how deprived some human beings are for utterly unjustified reasons having nothing to do with anything that they've done. And just the unfairness and injustice of it, you know, just like looking at these kids and knowing that most of them aren't going to be adopted because they're past the yeah. age when they will and the lost opportunity and just the lost like humanness. And just, it, I think it does kind of start to make you think about your own status and put things in perspective in terms of like what real deprivation is and why it matters when it becomes so vivid in your own life. Um, and, and getting to know the people that you now care about so much who have gone through it. Um, but yeah, I also do think, and I, I don't want to exaggerate the extent to which this is true because it probably is more true for say like David who you know, has biological children that he's lived with since birth and has gone through this a little bit more. But yeah, it does start to make, I do find myself now weirdly thinking about not just, hey, what is the world going to be like for me in 10 years, but what's the world going to be like for them in 50 years? Right. And actually caring more about that. You know, of course you care about it like in an abstract intellectual right. way, but you begin caring about it viscerally. Um, right. And yeah, I do think that's different. You can't really have that visceral concern without... And I'm not saying you have to have kids to have it, but you have to have some personal stake in a future that you yourself aren't going to be a part of in order to care about it as much as you care about your own. Right. And what about how are they experiencing this? Like, how do you how old are they and how do you explain what's happening in Brazil to them? So they're 11 and nine. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 been difficult because in it, like your instinct is just to shield them from it. Right. But we can't really do that because obviously my life is very political. And then, you know, my husband is an elected official. 
He's a city councilman in Rio de Janeiro. He is the first alternate now to go to the U.S. Congress. Um, he sat next to Marielle Franco, whose head was blown off um, in a brutal political assassination four months after our kids got here. And so they've gone to gay pride parades. They've gone to political events. You know, they they have very, very political and public parents. They've worn pink. And right? They, you- we, they, well, Bolsonaro's incredibly bizarre uh, women and family and human rights minister, I think that's her official title, recently pronounced that in the new era of Brazil, boys will wear blue and girls are going to wear pink again. So like a lot of people, we yeah did a family photo of us all wearing pink. So yeah, we actually did explain to them why that was happening. We didn't just say like, hey, go put on pink clothes right. just because like we feel like pink is the color of the day. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we want them to, they're part of our lives. And so yeah, we do try and understand, we do try and have them understand you know, why we're crying about this woman who was killed right. um, and why her picture is everywhere and why her wife is over at our house sad. You, these yeah. are, and, and why we're marching against Bolsonaro. Like, these are things they have to understand. You don't want to inculcate them. You don't want to expose Tra- them to things they're not them. ready to understand. Yeah. But at the same time, you can't shield them from the world. I don't think that's healthy for kids. And given the way we live our lives and what our work is and who we are, I think it's especially you know, necessary to try and get them to understand it as much as possible. And any, any kind of words about what can be done? This is so general, but in Brazil, like how do we fight Bolsonaro? How do we fight Trump? How do we make a world where murders like those don't happen? Um, what is it that you feel like people miss and need to be aware of? Well, so, you know, it's, it, it relates to what we were talking about before. I mean, in Brazil, for example, it's really fascinating because Bolsonaro, you know, won the election. He didn't just win the election. He won fairly easily. He almost won in the first round without right. a need for a runoff. And then he won by, you know, 10 points over the Workers' Party, which has won the last four national elections. So Brazil is not a right-wing country. It's been electing center-left and left-wing leaders for the last two decades. So it's not like overnight the country just right. suddenly woke up and became fascist. So then the question is, well, why did Bolsonaro win? Just like the question is, why did Trump win? And the answer, obviously, is some people find his racism and homophobia and misogyny and authoritarianism appealing, just like some people find Trump's racist and xenophobic appeals appealing. But a lot of people, including people I know in my life and our family's life, voted for him, not because of those things, but despite them, because they had concluded that the status quo and the ruling class had failed them so profoundly, with really good reason, that however bad Bolsonaro was, it was worth rolling the dice and risking an outsider who was threatening to burn the whole system down, just like people voted for Brexit, just like people voted for Trump, just like people voted for Obama in 2008, despite his lack of experience, because he was positioning himself as this outsider figure who was going to go in and change all the rules of how the system works, which he didn't do, but that was part of his political appeal. So I think the, the key to stopping, as I said before, this movement is to figure out why they're winning. And to do that... It requires a lot of people looking in the mirror who think that they're the good people and asking what is it that they've been doing, what policies have they been supporting that have been that are driving people to such anger and desperation that they're embracing political figures who five or years ago would have been unthinkable for them to support. Right. Um, why are they, you know, in such a state of desperation and rage about the status quo? And why would why would Lula have won, but the workers party did not win. I mean, to the extent that he would have won, right? Yeah. It's not entirely clear. Lula would have won. Um, he was definitely leading in the polls, 
But Lula is a singular figure in Brazilian politics. He, I interviewed him in 2016. I remember I went in with all these really hard questions and I sat down across the table from him. And after five minutes, I felt like I was hypnotized. Yeah. And I was like, don't look at him. Just, yeah. you have to hate him for this interview. Right. And he's just so mesmerizing right. and charismatic in his, he's just like a, a You're like, such what kind a, of ice cream do you like? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry for preparing all these mean questions yeah. for you. Let's talk about your greatness and all the different uh, aspects yeah. of it. So he, he has this very, you know, just this unique political charisma. He also did some amazing things when he was president. You know, he lifted millions of people out of poverty through mild redistribution of wealth. Um, and when he left office, the Brazilian economy was booming. They had just obtained both the Olympics and the World Cup. There was this sense that the future of Brazil had finally arrived. He left office with an 86% approval rating, 86%, and was regarded as the greatest political statesman on the planet. When Obama came and visited Brazil, he said, this is the guy that has it all figured out, mm. which is was the perception of him. And then the economy collapsed and the Workers' Party had huge corruption scandals, some of which swept up Lula in terms of allegations. And so he was significantly reduced as a figure in 2018, but he was still Lula. Right. And especially when it came to his ability to speak to the masses, to speak to the poor, to speak to workers, there's just nobody that had, you know, he came from poverty, right. he speaks that language. Whereas the person that he anointed once he became ineligible to run is like a good technocratic right. Handsome politician, but nobody knew him. He was the mayor of Sao Paulo for four years. He was a professor. He didn't have anywhere close to Lula's charisma. Very, you know, no one does. Right. So he just became the kind of face of the status quo. Yeah. He also had he barely like any time to run. Also. I met yeah, him at the Sanders like, thing. He's very nice and he's handsome. Yeah, no, he he's he's, like he's, a, a, he's a good guy. Yeah. He, Fernando Haddad. He's, yeah. he's a good guy. He is a good politician. Right. He's very skillful and competent. Right. But in a country that's drowning in multiple right. crises and that wants to burn the whole course, system yeah. down, this kind of very professorial face right. of the ruling party was exactly the figure that Bolsonaro wanted to run against, just like Steve Bannon said Hillary was the perfect foil for Trump. Alrighty. Uh, I could keep talking to you. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. Any part? Well, I know from experience that um, you're very tenacious, I am tenacious bordering okay. on harassing yeah. when it comes to asking for more sessions. So I'm always happy to talk okay, to you. It's great. always fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. And say all right, hi Katie, to your good whole, to talk to you. Whole crew. All right. I will do that. Great. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Find out more about Glenn Greenwald, about the shelter and what is happening in Brazil at his Twitter, G Greenwald. An update is that his husband, David Miranda, is going to be a congressman. He was a city council member. He's taking over for Jean Willis, who was one of the few openly gay members of Congress who has fled Brazil because of the death threats that he's received and also the increased violence against LGBTQ people and politicians, including, of course, Mariela Franco. Listen to my bonus interview with Glenn, where we talk about how awkward it is to have once been friends and colleagues with the media elites who you now think are part of the problem. That's at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com 
patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Find us on Facebook, the Katie Helper Show, and on Twitter, I'm KT Helps. That's letter K, letter T, H A L P S. And the hashtag is KT Helps Show. That's letter K, letter T, H A L P S H O W. The Katie Helper Show's music is by the band Cordoba. Our sound editor is Ted Reedy.